Okay, everybody. Welcome back to the Nothing Owed podcast. You're here with uh, Brian Hanna, as always. I have um, my special guest, Ben Woodbury, back again with us. And this is a special episode because this is the kickoff to our second season. Um, we have a lot of interesting changes coming up, which I'm really excited to talk about. And then uh, Ben and I have been working on some t-shirts. So in the near future, you'll be able to get some uh, Nothing Owed merchandise, which will be very cool because it'll be some Modus quality shirts with the Nothing Owed logo. Uh, ben helped me out on that a lot. And uh, Lindsay, uh, they did both have done a lot of work for me on the t-shirt space. So that'll be very cool. So we will have that up and running shortly as soon as I get off my behind and get that set up, which is a lot harder than I expected, but nonetheless, it's coming. Uh, so this will be a good season. Um, we have some great guests lined up as always. Um, and hopefully 2021 is better than 2020, but, uh, as of today, it is looking to be just as crazy, if not crazier than 2020. So here's hoping, but on that note, I'm going to turn it over to Ben real quick so he can introduce himself and then we'll, uh, we'll get to our special guest today, which I am really looking forward to talking to. So Ben, what's new? How you been? Pretty good. Had a good holiday. Uh, got the first time in a long time. We had uh, all four of our boys in one spot. My daughter um, was unable to make it uh, out from St. Louis, but we had all four boys, one from college, one from the army, one from St. Louis, and then the, the little guy that lives with us still. So uh, great holiday. Um, are we officially now 2021 season two? Are we allowed to say officially sponsored by Modus Nation for the podcast? I think. I mean, are we the first paying sponsor? As a matter of fact, you are. Oh, so, okay. I just, we can say it now. We, I, the Nothing Owed podcast sponsored by Modus Nation. We'll have to give you a little blip for the next episode where you get to read off our little blip about how you love Modus Nation. I do. I wear it every day. <laughs> I haven't washed it in the two months since you gave it to me. I love it. I love it. No, it, that's that's one of our, I mean, that's that's very cool. Um, without getting too far in the weeds, but no, that's one of the, the benefits of, like we talk about, networking and reaching out to people. Um had I not reached out to Ben, this relationship wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have developed. So I think it's, it's been beneficial for both of us. And I am very happy. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here uh, again um, and just love the audience. I love what you're trying to do with the show. Um, and it's, uh, and I like to talk and hear myself talk. So uh, it's always a good time when I'm on the podcast. Well, good. I hope so. Because another little secret that I'm going to spill is uh, Ben and I are working on doing a, a spinoff show that's in the works. So that'll be uh, announced sometime in the near future, but uh, that should be pretty cool. So if you like hearing us talk and, uh, and if you're like Ben, you like hearing yourself talk and uh, <laughs> you should enjoy the show. Cause we're, um, we like to keep the nothing owed show a uh, little cleaner, you know, a little more professional, but uh, with all the craziness in the world, I think uh, 2021 will be a good, good time for us to launch a show where we just kind of let loose and talk about all the crazy stuff going on and politics and kind of whatever, whatever else we feel like. So that'll be another, uh, another cool thing coming up. I can't wait. 
that'll be cool. I'm looking forward to that. We'll, too, probably, we'll have to get that, uh, that crayon eater, uh, forest back on for that one. Of course. That would be fun. <laughs> Very good. And actually that would, uh, that'd be cool to have a couple guests on at one time. Just have a big old, uh, big old chat. That'd be fun. But, yeah. That'd be great. That'd be cool. So everyone out there, we're kind of getting off topic, but we're just giving you a little taste of what's in store for 2021. So who happens to be your brother. Um, but we wanted to bring Sam on because he has a great story to tell. Uh, he's a Marine. So that makes him top tier guest above all the other branches, just like all the other Marines. Um, oh, here we go. <laughs> but uh, on a serious note, Sam's got a great story to tell. Um, he fits a lot of the categories of the people that we like to talk to on the show. Um, I don't want to tell too much of his story, but uh, he was a Marine and he now is an addiction counselor and he's also um, an entrepreneur. So he's done a lot of things and he is also doing some good work to help a lot of people. And you know, like we talk about on the show, the, the theme of the show and the title obviously is, is nothing owed. Um, and I chose that name because I wanted to focus on people that were looking to, to take that first step to make changes. And obviously the title means nobody owes you anything, right? It's up to you to make those changes. We can't do it for you, but what we try to do is give you the tools to make those changes that you want to make in your life. So whether it's a business or whether it's an addiction or whatever it is, we want to give you the tools to make your life better, to take charge of where you're headed. Because like we've talked about before, there's a lot of opportunity in this country and there's no reason to, to sit around and try to wish yourself into a better position. The tools are there. So we're there to give them to you. And that's why I wanted to bring Sam on because I think he's got a lot of tools in his toolbox to help people with, with those decisions and with, um, with those journeys. So that being said, Sam, how you doing? What's new? Why don't you uh, give us a brief introduction and then we'll, uh, I want to get into your story. Gentlemen, thanks for having me on the podcast. Of course. Um, really happy to be here. I could sit here and listen to YouTube banter for another five, 10 minutes before we get rolling. Um, it's always good doing that with old Benjamin. And there's <laughs> I keep trying not much to explain new. to him. I keep trying to explain to him that the Marine Corps is not a branch. It's, it's the stepchildren of the Navy. There's no such branch as the Marine Corps. I keep trying to explain it to him, but you two don't listen. Well, that's why I'm an addiction counselor now. Now you know why, because of the stepchild <laughs> deal. <laughs> but there's not it. much new um going on going on on this end uh aside from the election but like brian said we'll save that for another time um but i'm not happy about it i'll say that much there's you know just trying to go into work and um take care of what i need to for the family married with four daughters so hearing ben brag about my nephews um, he always likes to rub it in, boys, boys, boys. Um, and over here, it's uh, frozen, uh, <laughs> LOL dolls, and girls, girls, girls. That's what I have going on on this end. Well, I mean, that, that, Be- that's good. beautiful that's good girls. That's right. That's, I mean, that's good for you. But what are your kids into? Uh, 
Well, the kids are actually into like scooters and dirt bikes. I'm just, you know, I'm into dollhouses. That's for sure. Hey, it's, it's 2021, man. You know, that's right. We don't judge. We don't judge. We're not here to judge. <laughs> Speaking of San Francisco. <laughs> oh, man. Here we I'm go. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. It's going to be a ride. That'll be good. We'll gang up on the army guy later. That's right. Bring it. <laughs> I will tell you, he didn't, he didn't say it. He has four of the most beautiful, um, intelligent, quirky little girls. Uh, I try to FaceTime with them and get down to California to see them as much as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his wife's okay. Just joking. Yeah. His wife's, his wife's beautiful and a wonderful addition to our family. Uh, so he, he does have a, a, a house full of uh, feminine uh, activity. So I feel for him sometimes. I think he's calling us from his man cave. He has his wife, let him build a little uh, uh, man cave in the garage. So um, that's his home away from home in home. Shout out to home. wife and happy birthday to wife as well. That's um, right. I forgot. When you listen to this, her birthday was yesterday. I won't say how old she is. I'll just say it's over 30 and um, happy birthday, love. Happy birthday. I don't know her, but I'm sure she's lovely. So happy birthday to your wife. <laughs> He's okay. I'm just joking. All right. Sorry. I keep digressing. I got to keep my mouth shut during this one. No, it's, we're having a good time. It's yeah. no problem there. But uh, but let's talk about Sam. Well, Sam, it, let's talk about how your uh, your childhood. Where'd you grow up? Um, any any uh, interesting stories there? Like where, where were you born? Let's hear hear everything from the start. Let's let's hear the whole kitten caboodle. Yeah, I mean, so born in San Diego, and I was actually uh, adopted. Uh, ben, sure, people were listening back on. Whenever Ben did the podcast, but Ben's the oldest. I'm the youngest of five. Uh, our parents are beautiful. They actually adopted all five of us. Um, there's Ben, Allison. Andy, Melissa, and then me. That's the baby. And so got adopted out of San Diego. Our dad was stationed at Travis Air Force Base. He was a pilot in the Air Force. And um, shortly after, we ended, I think when I was two, we ended up moving to England. We were in England for three years. Don't remember much of anything whenever it comes to England. Um, pretty much all my memories come from uh, St. Louis, and it's actually outside of St. Louis on the Illinois side. It's called O'Fallon, uh, Illinois, where the metropolitan area is St. Louis, and that's where I grew up. Um, was, I mean, pretty normal uh, middle-class family, I'd say. Um, Mom and dad pretty much gave us everything that we could have wanted and then some. They actually, all the brothers and sisters call me the golden child. I'd say they actually gave me a little bit more. Then the other four, um, I got Facts. three cars. <laughs> I got three cars before I turned uh, 18. First car was a Honda Accord. Mom and dad sold that when I got busted for a party. And then they bought me a brand new Civic. And then I got five tickets and one pullover. They got rid of the Civic and they bought me a Grand Prix. And that was all before 18. So Ben would always say, hey, why don't you mess up again so you, mom and dad will get you a Mercedes next time around? 
But um, yeah, I mean, growing up in O'Fallon was cool. Uh, mom and dad got us into sports pretty early, and that's when I was supposed to actually play peewee football, the way I recall it. And then Ben actually got injured because Ben's 12 years older than me. So when I was five and going into Pop Warner, Ben was 17. And I think Ben got an injury. Mom yanked me out of Pop Warner, put me into soccer, and um, fell in love with the sport. Like I grew up playing club ball and traveling the country for it and got pretty good. And uh, later on, I actually got some scholarship offers for it. Uh, but speaking kind of on what Brian said on the introduction, I think that's I'm definitely going to be tying in um, behavior health as well as substance abuse and uh kind of like what led up to where i'm at today yeah so yeah i mean i've always had uh i've always been interested in chaos and i heard a little bit on the introduction talking about crazy so it's only fitting that you have me on for the first episode of uh, your second season so i remember uh Really, like in first, second grade, I was always getting into fights. Um, there's something attractive about that piece and being a quote-unquote tough guy. And my teacher told me, hey, if you get in, or the principal called me into the office in second grade. He said, look, if you get in one more fight, then I'm going to expel you. And the next day, got in another fight, got expelled. Uh, I'm waiting to hot. I'm waiting at the bus stop like two days later to go to my new school and a short bus pulls up and opens its doors right in front of me. And I look back at my mom confused and she said, go on, that's your bus. So I had to go to like a behavior disorder class for the rest of second grade on the short bus and then all of third grade. So my buddies in soccer actually called me short bus growing up. Um, and then it kind of, it continued on like that, uh, I always was into fighting, partying, and, and hooking up with girls, really. So when uh, I truly thought that uh, my skills for soccer was going to take me where I needed to be in life, regardless of grades, anything else. So I didn't really pay too much attention to, to school. Um, so when I graduated with a 1.9, and got like a 16 on, what is it, the SAT or the ACTs? Um, I, I scored a 16, and you actually have to get a 21 on that and graduate with a 2.5 to get a Division One scholarship. So I did a year at junior college. Okay. And uh, during this time, I was already, like I had been doing quite a bit of partying, um, but I think a turning point happened junior year. High school. I had that big party. I was supposed to get all state that year for soccer. Mm -hmm. uh, party got busted. I ended up uh, not being able to finish on the soccer team that year. And I kind of started hanging out with a different crowd. And that's really when I started getting into like, more drugs, more alcohol, and uh, started feeling that party piece. So Fast forward to whenever I went to junior college um, and, and kind of was starting to piss everything away. I um, remember, <laughs> like, I, I started with 18 credits first semester, 18 credits second semester, 
got first team all Midwestern and I finished freshman year with zero credits. So that's when mom and dad looked at me and kind of said, Hey, you need to figure something out, but you can't just keep wasting your life away here. And shortly after that's, you know, when I made the decision to join the Marine Corps. Okay. I want to ask you something though. When you were in school and high school and you said you started partying and stuff and drinking and drugs, I'm, I'm curious, is that something you feel like that you sought out those substances or do you feel like it was just you trying to fit in and trying to, or I guess my question is, were you, did someone offer that to you or was it something that you just were drawn to and you kind of sought it out? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it was a bit of both. Um, one, like, I definitely say the fitting in piece. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that tenfold okay. because once I got in trouble for that party, kind of the next day, that happened on a Friday. Monday, I go into school and everybody's kind of, it kind of reminded me of like the movies. Whenever that guy's walking through the hallway and all the girls are saying hi and all the guys are giving high fives or whatever, that's literally what happened to me. Okay. that Monday whenever I went back to school. So like that, the fitting in and, and kind of giving you this edge of like, Oh, he does like harder stuff. And then also kind of just like to escape too. Like I would seek it out as well. Kind of just to, so I didn't have to feel as much. That's interesting. I know I don't want to get too personal, but if you don't mind me asking that, you said you felt like you needed to escape I mean, from, from what you're saying, it sounds like you had a pretty good life. I mean, you're a good athlete, good family. What do you, what did you feel like you had to escape from? I mean, I think part of, I, part of it was pressure okay. um, in terms of not necessarily by my parents. My parents were, were typically supportive regardless of, of what I did. Um, but I really think just that there was a, there was definitely an expectation and that's something that I'll keep back to whenever um, we, we discussed the part where my wife and I actually got the double intervention on us to both yeah, go to treatment, sure. but something that uh, an individual Scott Gardner, who was part of the church that we grew up in, he pointed out um, during that intervention, he said, I noticed that when you played sports like anytime you were the captain, whether it was for basketball or for soccer, or did really well at baseball. You really excelled because it was a team deal. Um, but anytime that the focus was solely on you, even though you were good enough, you you didn't ever really step up to the challenge. And that's what happened. Like wrestling, I did pretty well, but I didn't like that it was just me and there wasn't the team factor. So I quit wrestling. I did swimming. Uh, swimming I, I was doing a lot of solo races whether it was the 100 meter freestyle or the 100 meter breaststroke and I quit that as well because it was an individual type deal and I didn't like that type of pressure hmm. that's interesting yeah so I mean I, I it almost seems like it almost seems like you had a fear of maybe being successful or almost kind of had a fear of being singled out so you you were kind of trying to take yourself off that pedestal and maybe 
kind of stay in the shadows in some way. It's kind of, it seems like it anyway. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I'd agree with that, with that take. I think that's pretty spot on. Hmm. And you, that's interesting that you said, I know I'm backtracking a little bit, but I think this is interesting and I, I really appreciate you telling your story because I know it'll be helpful to anyone else out there. But um, I mean, it, it sounds like you kind of had that kind of that mentality from the very start. I mean, from his first, second grade, he said, I mean, it, it just seems like you always, do you have any idea why you started so, so young? I mean, do you feel like that, um, did, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, did something happen young in your childhood that maybe you were, you didn't want to, you were afraid of that failure or afraid of success maybe? Like, is, is there something you can think of that kind of put you down that path or has it always just been as long as you can remember? Well, I mean, I it's kind of awkward because Ben's here, but oh. I mean, the best time to, to to say it would be with Ben here, I guess, at the same time. Because no, I, <laughs> I would like talking behind behind people's backs. But um, with Ben, like, I've, I've always, like, looked up to and respected uh, Ben uh, growing up. Like, that's – he's my best friend, always has been. And uh, I think that kind of fueled some of it because Ben definitely had a name for himself around – our area where we grew up and it was always something that I felt like I needed to exceed anything that he was doing. Okay. I needed to top it. And, gotcha. and that was, I mean, even teachers in high school would be like, Oh, Woodbury, You're Ben Woodbury's little brother. And I was like, yeah. And I said, Oh, and I wanted to make sure like I didn't prove him wrong whenever they had that look. So I mean, I made sure to do that. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I ran with, uh, so my, my dad, our dad was stationed in England. Um, and then he got stationed at, uh, back in fact, at Scott air force base and in the area Sam's talking about, we lived in a little Irish community, uh, O'Fallon, Illinois. Um, and, uh, the school there encompasses part of the, you know, a lot of the air force community, but the other part of that community is um, you know, what I'll call the local community has been there for years and years and years mm-hmm. and years, very Catholic, uh, you know, Irish Catholic Midwest, um, community. Uh, when we moved there, Sam was, uh, much Four. younger. I, I was in between, uh, I was in the middle of my junior year in high school. So Sam spent most of his life, uh, there growing up there where I, I moved around, um, every three years, you know, and then I went to army, uh, right after I graduated. So it was a year later, a year and a half later. Um, but while I did live there, I ran with a, a pretty rambunctious crowd myself. Um, mm-hmm. uh, some characters, uh, there was a, there was a program that, uh, was enacted while I was a junior in high school there where they would um, bring some some of the kids from East St. Louis inner city schools um, to some of the school programs in uh, in O'Fallon, which is is it's you know it's a suburbia community on the outskirts of uh, metropolitan St. Louis. So um, I befriended many of those guys and uh, you know a lot of wannabe gangsters and um, 
I was a pretty popular kid myself. Uh, same kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm very similar story to Sam's. Mm-hmm. I was pretty good at football, but you know, quit because the coaches were, you know, too rough or whatever, you know, and, um, definitely had a name for myself before I, uh, I departed and went in the army. So I, I, I did not leave him uh, <laughs> a great legacy maybe to live up to, but, uh, he always fought more than me though. I rarely got in fights. I was a lover, not a fighter. I was both. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that yeah, that's spot on. And then we didn't really help much with Ben's son, my nephew Tyson. Either kind of whenever he went through school, eight years later, uh, same type of. Yeah, my we, son. We didn't, that, we didn't help him out. My son, that's in the army right now, Brian is. Uh, he went to that same high school and graduated that yeah. same high school, and so many of the kids that like they're not kids now, obviously, but the the people. Um, that Sam and I went to high school are now teachers there. Um, and so when my daughter and my son went through that school, they, they got the same looks like, wait a minute, you know, who, wait, which kid are you who, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And so it, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and, and to go back to what you were asking, Brian. So I, I think that's a big piece, like as far as like any childhood trauma or anything like that, didn't really, um, nothing crazy happened or yeah. what have you. I pretty standard upbringing. I think I was just always attracted. I've always been attracted to the chaos. Um, and, uh, what Ben was saying, the rambunctious piece that always right. stuck out. Like, yeah, we were in the suburbs, but I found myself more often than not, um, on the North side of St. Louis, which is, I mean, equivalent to Compton out in California. And I just, there's something about that environment that felt comfortable. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I, we can, we can talk about that for, for hours. I'm sure that's, yeah. thank you for sharing that. I know that, I mean, that's, we're getting pretty deep, but I, I, I really appreciate hearing that. And the reason I asked too, is I think a lot of times some people, when they hear someone else talk about their childhood or, or, you know, certain things, I think at least for me anyway, I can, I can say, I can say that certain things that you hear that help you put pieces of your own life, you know, together mm-hmm. in certain, you know, so you hear other people's experiences. And I think it, sometimes it helps you work through some of your own, you know, experiences or issues or whatever you have. And it kind of helps to know that, you know, everyone out there has, <laughs> nobody's perfect you know, and everyone has certain things that set them down a certain path. But, you know, I think you're a great example of no matter what path you go down, there's, there's no reason you can't stop and make a U-turn and, Mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can always write the ship until you take your last breath. You know, you you can always, you can always make things better. So, but on that segue, which was just about as perfect as they come, um, you enlisted in the Marine Corps. So I think that's yeah. where we left off. So I was going to say the exact opposite. I was going to say, yeah, but then he went in the Marines and then, you know, it <laughs> took him a little bit longer to write the ship. Well, I mean, oh, my goodness. if God was alive today, he would be a Marine. So, oh my hell. <laughs> I hope that isn't a sacrilege. I apologize to anyone out there, but 
you know, we have to be we have to be honest with ourselves. Yeah, I mean, this oh. is all about honesty on this yes. podcast. This is fake media. This is fake news. That's what's happening right now. You're trying to fool the American people. That's what's happening right now. You might as well. This might as well be the CNN podcast. Benjamin, before we get too far off track, let's go into me joining the Marine Corps. And then we'll okay. take it all right. There. My fault. All right. It's all my good because we'll, we'll keep going. I'm going to um, lose my mind. My head is exploding. <laughs> For all you listeners that cannot see this, this is not a video. I want you to know that the God is a Marine comment just made my head explode. My eyes are bleeding. <laughs> Well, if you were a little tougher in the Marine Corps, it wouldn't have been a problem, but whatever. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, now we're getting into it. Let's talk about you enlisting the Marines. Let's tell everybody about how you counted beans in the Marines. <laughs> hey, we didn't, have time, we didn't have timeout cards. I'll tell you that much. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm about to sign off. You know what? We're anyway, go, Let's get into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's get into it. Um, so, yeah, I ended up joining the... You know, I failed out of college, out of junior college, because I was killing it. And um, there was one day, it was March of 07. I was kind of sitting around the house uh, plotting my next move, which probably wasn't a great move because my ideas back then were terrible, and they still are, actually. But um, I uh, went through the yellow pages because yellow pages were a thing back then, and uh, for those of you that don't know what that means, it's a phone book. Um, and they have pages where you can look in the back and look up businesses. So anyways, I called the the recruiting station. And, and part of me even, I mean, to be honest, doing the Marine Corps route was uh, like Ben shared in, in his podcast. You know, both of our grandfathers were in the Navy. Father was pilot in the Air Force. Ben was in the Army and he was a scout. And so I figured out, hey, I'll close the branches. And that's why I joined the Marine Corps, actually. I was like, well, this is what's left. Um, the best of the best. So right. I I call and this guy picks up the phone and he says, thank you for calling the recruit depot. This is Sergeant so-and-so. And I return with the, that same type of voice. I'm like, hey, how you doing? This is uh, Sam and I'm interested in joining the Marine Corps. And he's like, well, how did you hear about us? And so we're, t- we're speaking and that dialogue back and forth for about five to 10 minutes, like really proper, really polite. And then he says, Hey, why don't you come by and check us out today? And I wasn't really paying attention um, at that point of the conversation. So part of my language, but I broke character and I said, no, I got some shit I'm fitting to handle. I mean, I'm not going to be able to make it. And then on the other side of the line, he says, come on down. It's the Marine Corps. So I was like, Oh, I'm talking to, okay. So I said, all right, I'll tell you what I got a couple of things I got to do and I'll shoot over there and check in and we'll take it from there. So I I walk in and he says, you must be Woodbury. And he smiles. This, this Sergeant had dress blues on and he had golds all on the top grill. And I was like, yeah, I'm joining today. And he, he was actually from the North side of St. Louis. So um, this kind of goes back to you are what you attract. Like I went in with a certain mindset and I think by then I was already an alcoholic. And so, um, you hang out with like-minded individuals. So he and I actually got after it and, um, I joined, but I said, look, I need one more summer. 
here in St. Louis, and then I'll go. So signed up in March. Uh, I wasn't set to leave until September of 07. And so for that whole summer, I was actually running around doing a lot of uh, criminal activities with him and some others, uh, leading right up until I joined. How'd that, how'd that even come about? Like, I mean, I'm just, how that conversation. You can read it. You can, yeah. you can read it off of one another. Yeah. And, uh, he knew what I was about as soon as I walked in the door and vice versa, as soon as he smiled. Um, <clears throat> and I actually still talk to him to this day and fast forward, I reconnect with, um, when I'm like a year and a half sober and he goes and we, and we start talking and next thing you know, like we ended up talking for an hour about God and uh, he like goes to church now and married. He lives in the suburbs back in St. Louis, um, taking care of his five kids. He, he got out after 12 okay. as a staff sergeant and um, it, it was really just like two completely different people from the individuals that first met having a combo. That's interesting. Still Dude. talk to him to this day. What, uh, what changed him? Like, what did you ever ask him? About? Like, well, how did he change? I mean, I think, I think when he got out, you, you know how difficult it can be transitioning from, uh, the military to the civilian life. And I think he kind of just hit this low point. Uh, as a civilian where he didn't know where to go, what to do with them life or what to do with himself in life. Uh, the thought of like suicide was the farthest thing from his mind, but he, the way he was living, he, it was an abysmal existence. And so I think that's when he started going to church and it kind of revitalized him and, and his outlook on life. Was he, how can I ask this? Was he, did you ever ask it? Was he a church going person at one time in the, in the past? No, no. I mean, where he was from on the North side of St. Louis is like the jungle. Okay. No, he definitely wasn't going to church like that, but um, something that him and his wife got behind and he's actually a real estate agent now and he does pretty well. I mean, he was, and then he also, that part that I, I touched on with you before we started about Japan, um, yeah. I ran into him out in Japan. Okay. And he told me to knock all that off. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Long history with that one. Well, I mean, it sounds like it, but I, it sounds like it turned out for the best. I mean, yeah. If, that's it's actually pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, I know what happens, but for the two of you to make a lot of the same changes and change your lives for the better, it's, it doesn't normally turn out that way for a lot of people, which is yeah, kind of kind of sad to think about. But oh yeah, I so, mean, I've, you'd be surprised at the amount of individuals that have similar stories to me that I've sponsored since I've gotten sober. Um, I've sponsored a lot of veterans. Um, in sobriety and some of their stories are right up there. Yeah. Well, I'd like to hear a few of those. So let, let's, so you enlisted in, I'll just maybe we can touch on a little bit, but you enlisted in 2007. I mean, yeah. how was your, how was your career in 
in the Marine Corps? I mean, did you, did you find it fulfilling or were, I mean, were you? Yes. Yes. And no, I okay. feel if, if I could go back, there's a lot of things that I would definitely change. Obviously being um, sober now, I feel like I could have done a lot better than the way it turned out. Mm -hmm. um, again, it goes back to the, you are what you attract. Right. Like I went in uh, an alcoholic. So I, <clears throat> I end up joining and, and I, I take my ASVAB, did terrible on the ASVAB part. Um, truth be told, I, I might've been a little bit drunk whenever I took the ASVAB. And so when it came back, he was like, look, you have choices between a grunt or supply. I was like, grunt back in 07, Afghanistan, Iraq. So let's do supply. So I ended up joining up, doing supply. When, when I got to boot camp, um, the things that I do appreciate from my time where I felt like it helped me grow up in a sense, even though I was in the midst of a lot of chaos and, and my alcoholism while I was in, um, I met a lot of good people. And uh, I remember finishing boot camp, going home, uh, and kind of just thinking like, okay, well, what's the play for my first duty station? Because as you know, whenever you get in, really the, the options that they're giving you are, hey, you can either go to Japan, uh, North Carolina to Lejeune, or you can go to Pendleton. Mm -hmm. And so I, I end up going back for Marine combat training, finish, go to my MOS school, which was in North Carolina, after Marine combat training, which was in Cali. Um, so I'm in North Carolina, finished my MOS school. And as they're going down the list, they, they start with the A's and they work their way down. So I'm at the bottom with Woodbury. And he's asking everybody where they want to go. And then he's telling them where they're actually going. And so he gets to me and he says, Woodbury, where do you want to go? And I said, I want to go to Disneyland, gunnery sergeant. And he said, well, you can go to Disneyland right after your two years in Okinawa, Japan. And my heart hit the floor um Okinawa was not where I wanted to go right but and I was actually my wife her and I had actually gotten engaged during this time and they always say hey don't go home especially if you're going to Japan don't go home and get married before you go to Japan horrible idea you're not going to see your, your spouse for the first two years so what did I do I went home I, my wife and I got married back in March of 08, March 22nd, 2008. Wife and I get to do a quick wedding, uh, honeymoon in Arkansas, which we could do a whole segment about why I went to Arkansas another <laughs> time. Um, and then I'm off to Japan. So the first six months we're, of our marriage, we're apart. I'm in Okinawa, kind of getting settled in. She's back in St. Louis. We're talking every day. And she came out to visit and said, okay, said bye to everybody uh, back in St. Louis. Said, I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Comes out to visit. I was already playing soccer at the time. And I had the, the master gunnery sergeant uh, of that base that I was kind of in charge of all the admin. He was actually my coach. And so he said, hey, I'm going to push all your paperwork through to change it from unaccompanied to accompanied orders. So nice. 
Jana came out, said, hey, I'll see you guys in a couple weeks. My orders get approved while she's out there. She stays for two years. So we end up moving into the apartments on base. Um, two weeks later, she's pregnant with our 11-year-old. Um, and so she ended up having, we had Salia out there in Okinawa, Japan. Okay. And that was, yeah, I'll, I'll let you go from there. Cause it sounded like you had a couple of questions. No, I, I'm, this is cool. I go ahead. Okay. Right on. And so we, again, I, I was always a bit troublesome. Um, it's kind of interesting that, you know, I joined the Marine Corps when I have a problem with authority. So I got, um, you know what an NJP is or yeah. non-judicial punishments. So I call them MJPs, my judicial punishments. Um, I got one MJP before Jaina got there. Um, and that was for being out past curfew because when you're out in Okinawa, you have to be back at a certain time. And, um, I didn't make the cut. So I, I got one and then master, he was a master sergeant at the time, Master Sergeant Lee, which if you end up listening to this, I want you to know I always appreciate you. Um, Master Sergeant Lee was kind of one of those guys where, I mean, he picked up Master Sergeant in 16 years, which is pretty much un unheard of. He picked up Master Gunnery Sergeant before 20. Um, and he's a lifer. He should be finishing here in the next uh, couple of years. But anyways, he, he kind of took me under his wing and said, hey, let's, you know, it's time to, to get your act together. I think he saw a lot of himself and me. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> he's what I looked at as like the epitome of a Marine. And so anytime he told me to do something or, or he was uh, with us, I always made sure to stay squared away and stayed on top of everything that I was trying, um, that I needed to be doing. And so when Jaina had, uh, when we had Salia, Master Gunny Lee actually got deployed to um, Afghanistan. And I'm not, let me preface this with like, anything that happened isn't Master Gunny Lee's fault because like he wasn't there. Um, right. This I, I understand at the end of the day, it was my own doing um, what got me in these situations. But so our daughter's born two months later, I'm at a soccer tournament, one of the referees. I know that he's a Master Guns and he made a call that I disagreed with. I called him out by his rank during the game and told him that he was garbage. And next thing you know, I'm getting my second MJP uh, out in Okinawa. And Okinawa was like a really interesting time because uh, during that time, I, I started hanging out with some individuals that <laughs> kind of had a similar mindset to the way I did growing up that liked to party. They were pretty rowdy um, and liked to fight as well. And so this group of guys I ended up connecting with whenever I got that second MJP because they actually moved me out of the apartments and put me back in the barracks for 60 days um, on restriction. So during that time, I got connected with these guys. Um, we all got pretty close. Uh, next thing you know, we're getting involved with the Japanese mafia while I'm stationed out there and kind of running around doing quite a bit with them off base. And so in the midst of all this, I'm also, there's a Brazilian team, Brazilian soccer team that was going around playing a lot of the 
professional teams out in Okinawa and out mainly in Japan. And I guess the coach had heard about me through the grapevine. Um, he actually pulls me aside after one of my base games. He has a translator with him, and he asks me, he says, hey, uh, I appreciate the way you play the game. Would you be interested in coming and trying out for my team? And everybody that played soccer out there, they had heard about this Brazilian team. And uh, I was, like, honored that he would even ask me. And I went and talked to my chain of command about it. And they said, look, is, you know, as long as you stay out of trouble, um, we'll, we'll let you play. And if there's any times that it conflicts with what we have going on here, you just need to make sure to take a lead for it. So I'm playing for this soccer team. I am a Marine, which is kind of like my cape. Right. And then in the background, I'm still doing all this uh, like underworld type of stuff. So I kind of started getting this feeling of like that, that same type of fuel of untouchable, invincible, uh, pretend tough guy type of stuff. When really, I think what a lot of it came down to is just, it was fear. Um, and, and kind of some of those thoughts of uh, not being good enough that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Did you feel like it was all catching up with you? Like at some yeah. point, this is going to come crashing down or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really started hitting me. Um, Jaina and I went home to visit. That's when we came out to see you, Ben in Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. I remember and then, that. Yeah. And so we left the literally the next day, my right hand man ended up getting busted by NCIS. Turns out that NCIS had us under investigation. Um, they surrounded him at gunpoint and there were like 13 agents on the case. And that was literally a day after I left. And I, and I felt like the, the walls were closing in prior to coming out there to visit you guys. So Jana and I and Celia, we leave. And, and that's part of the insanity before I forget is like, I genuinely thought all of that stuff that I was doing, I needed to be doing to take care of my wife and my kid. And really what I should have been focused on full time was the Marine Corps. Um, so we ended up going, we were gone for 30 days, came back. I find out what happened to my right hand man. They basically brought him in to this room and they threw out this, <clears throat> they threw out this uh, thick folder that had pictures of he and I going in and out of known Yakuza, like Japanese mafia locations uh, all over Okinawa. And they said, look, we don't even watch you. We just want Woodbury. If you give them up, we'll let you out with honorable discharge. Uh, if you don't, then we're going to send you to the brig and then we're going to end up kicking you out. And he looked at him and said, hey, it looks like I'm going to the brig. And so he ended up doing like seven to nine months in the brig and they were expecting him to talk and he never did. And so he ended up, uh, they ended up kicking him out and I still talk to him um, to this day. And so we ended up, they put me on legal hold in Japan for like a month. And then they finally let Jaina and I, Jaina, Salina and I go to our last duty station in North Carolina. 
and did ended up being in North Carolina for a year, uh, finished, got out, and then came back to St. Louis. But by, by this point, like throughout this whole four years, I'm drinking and then I start doing a lot of opiates as well while I was in. And so I got out September of 2011. Mm-hmm. And by January of 2012, uh, Jana and I wake up, we come downstairs and there's an interventionist in the house. And there's the whole friends and family set up and, and they're holding Celia. She was two at the time. And, you know, it was one of those go to treatment or get out. And uh, they went around and they they all read their letters to Jaina. And I'm listening like, uh, this is rough. But at the same time, that was actually the first time in a while that I'd felt relieved. I was just, I was over the hustle and bustle of, of trying to get loaded every day. And so when they got to me, I said, I'm assuming you all wrote letters for me as well. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, you can spare me the letters. I'm going to go upstairs and pack a bag. Uh, when are we leaving? And they're like, oh, uh, now. And I said, all right, perfect. So I went up, packed a bag. My wife took a little bit more convincing, uh, but she came as well. Our interventionist actually flew both of us together out to North Carolina, to this place in Asheville called Four Circles, uh, which is no longer around, unfortunately, but um, it was a 60-day wilderness program, and that's where her and I both started our journey. And I did 60 days out there. My mom and dad looked after Celia, and then once we finished there, there's a, they gave us two options. They said, hey, you can go to – they didn't give me any options. They gave Jaina the options. They said, hey, you can go to Chicago – um, or you can go to Orange County. Mm-hmm. And there's two prominent facilities um, out in the nation that uh, really help with women and children. They'll take both of you. And so Chicago is only a five-hour shot from St. Louis. So it's like, okay, we're not going to um, Chicago. So she chose Orange County. So she came out here. My mom flew our 11-year-old out here. And she got her back at the treatment facility. And there, there was quite a bit of structure there still. And they had a daycare the whole night. And, and she was there for another six months. And I went to a sober living environment that was maybe like a half a mile down the road. Just going to say, so, so Sam, the, the facility that Jaina went to, <clears throat> there's not a lot in the country, right? That that take um, uh, a mother with a child at no. the same time, correct? That that's kind of no. why the the California thing got narrowed down. Correct. Unfortunately, and then you guys, that is you guys were separate too, right? For that, it, from yeah. what I remember, yeah, you got to see them, but but she lived at the facility with with your daughter, and then you lived at a different um, fac- not facility, but but home. Yeah, um, uh, there in Orange County. That's right. Yeah, that is correct. Can Before I, I'll no, go for it. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't want to interrupt you because I mean, this is fascinating. I'm fascinating. But when you were in the military still, how much of what you were doing, or I should say, how aware was your wife of what you were doing? Was, was she totally in the dark or was she kind of supportive of your 
extracurricular activities? She was aware to an extent. Um, so I, I explained to her, I said, hey, look, I have an opportunity um, to make quite a bit more money than what we're making now. Uh, the, the only downside is I'm going to be gone a lot and at random hours. And then I can't have you asking where I'm at or what I'm doing or what have you, uh, but know that you can reap all the reward, rewards uh, financially and that you can really essentially do whatever you want, whatever you want. And I said, if that's okay, then I'm going to do this. But if not speak now and I just, I'll sit it out because Last thing I needed whenever I was dealing with the type of people that I was dealing with was her asking me, like, hey, where are you at or what are you doing and what have you. So she thought about it, gave me the okay, and that's when I was off and running. Hmm. And I, uh, I mean, despite like some of my tainted memories from the Marine Corps. Again, I just, I want to be clear that that was my own doing. And I, I understand that. Yeah. I was definitely under the influence of a lot of substances and, and alcohol while I was doing all this, but I'll, I'll always be grateful for the, I met a lot of good people while I was in the Marine Corps and I learned a lot about discipline. That's, I mean, I mean I, it's kind of, uh, catch 22 given everything that I've shared up to this point but I have um, there are a lot of let's say morals as well that I was able to take with me and apply once I got sober hmm. oh, that's good to hear I, if you don't mind me asking I, you had said uh, opiates a few minutes ago Yeah. was that I guess How'd you get started on that one? I mean, was it pills? I mean, I, was it just something that you experimented with? Man, because that's kind of a, a big jump. Yeah, yeah. Um, so first time I did opiates, I was a freshman in high okay. school. And it was actually with one of my buddies. Um, and it wasn't even, a, it was an actual, actually an opiate blocker is what I took. I took a methadone. And really? there was something about that feeling, though, that high, that kind of just got me. It had me right away. Like, I, I enjoyed the way it felt. I was still, I would, like, take opiates or methadone, and then I would go and play in soccer games, and I would play fine. So that was kind of like me justifying along the way. And that was always a justification for me is, okay, well, I'm still doing well here, so it, this can't be affecting me. Or whenever I'm in the Marine Corps, it's like, well, I'm in the Marine Corps, so... I use that as kind of like this disguise in terms of like, if, as long as I'm still in the Marine Corps, I haven't been kicked out, I'm still here, then it's, it's fine to do that. And how I was passing, it started off with the methadone and then next thing you know, I started uh, taking perks and then I went from taking Percocet to taking the Oxycontin, the OC80s. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went from taking the 80s to heroin. Um, and I was actually, I was detoxing for the first two weeks of boot camp. Wow. Yeah, it was the worst two weeks physically of my life were those first two weeks of boot camp. It was rough. Um, 
But then I, I didn't know anything about the 12 steps at that point. Didn't know anything about recovery. Um, so I would, I finished boot camp and then I'm thinking, okay, well, I just finished boot camp and then this huge achievement. So I should reward myself. And I was doing opiates as soon as I got home for leave. And then I leave and we'll go to Marine combat training and I would just drink or what have you during that time. And then whenever I got out to uh, Okinawa again, it goes to, you are what you attract. Like, I mean, the second day in Okinawa, I was in the back of the warehouse in this bathroom that was kind of in the cut and with a couple of other individuals and, they pulled out a bottle of Captain Morgan's and like 30 Vicodin. And I was right back to doing the same thing, just in a different country at that point. Hmm. Did you feel like you had to, did you feel like when you were taking the pills, did they, did you feel like you had to graduate to something more because the pills were less effective? Or was that just yeah? Okay, that was that was a big part of it because the the oxycotton you could get it. I mean, people were charging as much as fifty to sixty bucks for one pill. Um, I wasn't paying; I was paying twenty five. But <laughs> regardless, it still adds up, and especially as you build your tolerance. Right. So the first time I did heroin, it was like okay, I can do a tenth of a gram, can last me a day, and it's only ten bucks. And so that's kind of what gets you, and it's the exact same feel, if not better, than the oxys. Oh, I've never, thank you for talking about that. I've never had anybody explain it that way. That's, oh. Yeah, so I I mean. Did you feel like, do you, would you have, would you say, would you have called yourself an addict at that point? Did you feel like you couldn't function without pills or, or the heroin? Well, or was well it- now that, now that I know what I know now, uh, absolutely. But at the time I didn't even know what, like, uh, anything about 12 steps. I didn't know about, or like addiction or I didn't even, anytime that I was starting to feel like garbage I, I never really put two and two together that it was withdrawals. I just knew that I didn't feel good and I didn't like it when I wasn't on it. Hmm. So it was just kind of, you just kept taking another hit just to keep the feeling going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just to keep off the shakes and everything. Like I, I would, especially in North Carolina, that, that last year was horrible, but I mean, while I was, one part I can't share with you from Japan is there was an individual I met that the way Okinawa is set up, Okinawa to mainland Japan is like Hawaii is to the United States. Like that's where a lot of individuals from mainland go to vacation. Okay. And so on Okinawa, there's 13 military bases. You have an army base, which is Tory Station. Uh, you have a Air Force Base, which is Kadena. And then you have a naval base, which is Camp Lester. And Camp Lester is where they have the naval hospital. That's where they do all the major surgeries. Um, each other base. And then you have 10 Marine Corps bases. 
And at all the other bases, it, more or less, they, they basically have uh, what you would call an urgent care um, kind of set up at each base. But anytime you need to do like major surgeries, everybody went to Leicester. So I met a guy, you don't really have opiate access like that out in Okinawa. Um, there just, there wasn't any really. Uh, even whenever I got connected with the people that I did, um, that was more other things. And <clears throat> I met a guy that worked at the Naval Hospital that did nighttime inventory of all the medications. So say there was um, the big bottles of 500 in each bottle of Vicodin. Say there was a tally of 103. He would mark it off as 100. And then he would sell me the other three bottles for 500 a bottle. So basically a dollar a pill. Wow. So I was taking anywhere from like 30 to 60 Vicodin in a day. And um, I would... The routine was, I mean, you wake up in the morning. Um, I'd probably take anywhere from three to five Vicodin, go on anywhere from a three to six mile run. I'd come home, change over, take maybe another five. And then I would go in um, for the morning. When we break out for chow at lunchtime, I would go back, take about five to ten more. Then I would come back home. And then I would, uh, like, anytime I got back home around four or five, I would take pills basically leading up to going to sleep and then wake up, repeat again. Uh, over the weekends, I'd recoup and then get back to it the next week. That's, a, that's incredible. That's pretty much how it went for the four years that I was in. Did you, did that cause you any other side effects i mean i imagine i know that can't be good for you like did you have any internal issues i mean did that affect you in any other ways luckily it didn't actually um and i don't know by by the grace of god it it didn't happen that way to where i had any long-term effects surprisingly especially when you're taking that much tylenol right um definitely not good for you but there were times like maybe six months. There, there were brief intermissions, like six months before I left Japan. The, the guy that I was getting all the pills from, he got stationed back mainland in the U.S. And he said, hey, look, I'm leaving. Um, I can get you like three more bottles before I leave. And I said, all right, cool. And then he ended up leaving and I didn't get the other three bottles. So that withdrawal was horrible. Um, but then if I didn't have opiates, I would just go back to drinking heavily every day. Right. I think those brief intermissions is, could have been why I didn't have the long lasting effects. Wow. And then people, for, for the listeners, they might be wondering, like, okay, how are you passing your drug test yeah. the whole time that you were in? Um, which is a good question. And the way it was set up in my unit was, I mean, say they were, you're in a warehouse, 
There's like 200 people that need a UA. They set it up in sections. So you have like last names A through D and then E through H and so so on and so forth. And basically they say, hey, it's a UA day. They would tell you in the morning when you got into the shop. Mm-hmm. And they just said, make sure you UA before you go to lunch. So that gives me four hours where I'm chugging. I probably chug five or six water bottles. I would go and pee about three, four times, and then I would go take the UA. So by the time you're taking the UA, you're you're just you're basically pissing water. And that and that worked. That never you never it never popped. No, it caught up to me. Okay. <laughs> it caught up to me whenever I was in North Carolina, actually. Okay. Um I'm in North Carolina, I have six months left before I get out. And my name didn't come up. And uh, for some reason, they, they basically had, like, all the boxes out except for, like, the last two. And so I went to lunch. By lunch, I'm already starting to withdraw. So I take some pills. I go back, and then they say, hey, Woodbury, your box came in. Um, so I go to UA, and I actually popped me, me. And then there was another guy who I was actually doing a lot of this with. And he he popped, either he popped or I popped. And what happens is whenever, typically they'll just, they're not going to test 200 tests. So they'll pick at random, maybe pick 50. One of us popped. And so whenever somebody pops, they end up testing the whole batch. So that's what happened. And and he and I both actually um, had to go to battalion. And I actually had to go in front of a board. Um, which a board is a uh, chief warrant officer, a high, high-ranking officer, um, and then a high-ranking non-commissioned or staff and uh, staff commission officer. So, like, there was basically I went in front of a master sergeant, a chief warrant officer, and a major, and it's kind of like set up like court. And I pled my case, and I said, "Look, I have six months left. Just let me finish." my six months and I'll get out and they signed off on it. And typically if you get it signed off by the board, you still have to kick it up to the base general, but pretty much more often than not what the board says goes. So six months goes by. I have three days before I get out. I had already pretty much, I shipped all my stuff back to uh, St. to O'Fallon. Illinois, and they called me into into battalion with three days left, and they said, Woodbury, you know how you were getting out in three days with an honorable? Mm -hmm. I said, yes, sorry, Major, and he said, well, you're getting out in two days with an other than honorable. Um, And I couldn't even, like, now I'm grateful that that happened the way it did. Um, Do I think part of that had to do with what happened in Japan is why uh, it kind of came back full circle and got me could have been, but I know that if I kept my medical benefits my, during this whole time, my wife was on a pain management contract that she was milking, um, due to the benefits. So like, if we would have kept our benefits, there's no telling how much longer that could have gone on once I got out before I finally got some help. 
Well, I didn't think about it like that. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. Do you think, I mean, maybe you don't know, but do you think somewhere somebody knew that and they, they made that decision for you or do you think it was just kind of the, the luck of the draw? Uh, it could have just been luck of the draw. What I, uh, I think what happened is I was under a lot of scrutiny while I was stationed out in Japan. And some of those uh, staff commission officers that I had in North Carolina were definitely witnessed my comings and goings while I was out in Japan. Uh, and I think it could have just came back down to like, hey, this guy doesn't deserve to get an honorable discharge, which I, I'm in complete agreement with the way that I was running and gunning. Like, yeah. there needs to be consequences. So uh, that could have had something to do with why the general kicked it back down. Hmm. I actually still, I mean, since I've gotten sober, part of getting sober, you um, step nine, you do it in amends. Mm -hmm. Then you make amends to those that you wronged or that you've harmed. And um, I actually spoke to that Sergeant Major and made by amends to him and uh, quite a few people that I was in the military with that were always rooting for me even when I was too ignorant to see it. And uh, Master Guns, he and I still talk. Uh, we talk at, at least once a year. We do a check-in just to see how, everybody's do, uh, how each other are doing and how our families are doing because, I mean, he's known... Uh, Salia since she was born mm -hmm. um, he actually did this whole little baby shower deal like I, I went on leave when we had Salia when I came back he had a bin full of stuff for the baby um, and he's kind of just always he, he always he never gave up on me even whenever I gave up on myself that's uh, good to hear Hmm. Man. How, let me ask you this now. I want to, I want to talk about getting sober and everything else, but, and maybe you can't answer this, but how widespread do you think the, uh, the pill problem or the opiate problem is in, in the military? I mean, do you, how common was that? Do you think? I mean, the, it's definitely there. Um, there's, yeah, uh, there's quite a few people that have gone. The crazy part, part of that I didn't even mention is while I was at boot camp, I went to, on Sundays, you know, they'll let you, they'll give you the option to go to church. Right. And so, you know, I was going like, get me out of here for a second. So I went, <laughs> I went, to, I went to church and went to the Mormon church. Um, and I met this guy, Maka Afti. And he was like, uh, he was like, hey, are you Polynesian? I was like, yeah, I'm half Tongan. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'm full Tongan. And he was like, well, what was your name before you? What was your last name? And I said, well, I'm adopted. And I said, but my last name was Wolfgram. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm like, uh, we're, re we're related in some way, shape, or form. So he followed up with his mom and got a letter from his mom uh, like a week later. And he said, hey, we're actually cousins. 
And it was, uh, I think we were like second cousins, which was kind of a trip. But I, I was talking to him about it because he was a grunt. He was uh, 0311. And he said while they were out there, there were quite a few people um, that were doing opiates because it's, I mean, it's pure out there in Afghanistan. And he he witnessed it. And I, I've seen a lot of uh, substance abuse and mental health come from uh, active, from veterans. Um, I've worked with a lot since I've gotten sober as well from all branches. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're being honest with each other um, and with the listeners, uh, definitely alcohol um, is a yeah. problem in the military. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I and at, at every duty station I had, um, there was, you know, at least one or two guys in my you know, just even in our small unit that, um, you know, we're abusing drugs of, of whatever sort. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I would bet that 90% of the 90% of the scout troop was by definition, alcoholics. I mean, I mean, if we're, if we're really being honest and, and, uh, transparent, you know, not that alcohol is bad for, for everybody. I, I enjoy a cocktail now and again, but mm-hmm. um, it's definitely something that uh, does not get addressed at the uh, lowest rank level, I think. Um, and, and there's not the, when I was in, it could be different now, but when I was in the army, there weren't, there was the, you could get in trouble for it, right? But there weren't any mental health or, um, resources i guess is the word right that i'm looking for um you know uh, easily available i'm not saying that there weren't resources on post or anything like you know that but it, it wasn't advertised um you know and and it wasn't easily available i guess you know but uh i definitely think that um young men and and women that are put, you know, we're, we're in what year 19, I guess, of a 20 year war. Uh, people that are put into these situations um, from every branch of, of our services. I, you know, I just think it, it multiplies that stress and, and um, you know, there has to be resources made available more for, for veterans uh, for everybody. I mean, Sam, you can get into that when you talk about, you know, what you're doing now and the, and the great things that you're doing with the Southern California community. Um, but mental health, cause I mean, it's a mental health issue, right? Am I, am I saying that right, Sam? It's a mental health issue. Um, and yeah. it's just, I mean, the resources are just not available, um, on post, you know, and at, at these air force bases. And, you know, I, I think that, we have to be, we have to make those more available. And, the, and I'm not taking away from the post. I mean, there are resources, but it's just not, it's not advertised and it's not popular. Um, you feel like you're a loser if you're going to go do that when you're, you know, you're supposed to be a door kicker. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and admitting and admitting that you may have a problem when you're 20 years old um, 
you know, and you just got done killing bad guys and, and GWAT, you know, across the world to admit that you may have an issue that you need to address is a problem. And then multiply that by 10,000 for people separating from the service, um, going to the civilian world, you know, it is not, um, I, I just don't think there's enough resources that, you know, all the tax dollars and public, uh, public view, or I, I mean, I don't know how to say it, but you know, the, there's an opioid crisis in our country that it's not just for veterans. It's for every single living, breathing American. There's an opioid crisis. And then, you know, from my angle, from what I'm very passionate about is helping veterans, um, that transition to civilian life on top of, you know, needing that mental health, uh, those resources. Um, I mean, I feel like we put a lot of tax dollars and a lot of effort into, you know, COVID, right, for example, but and we're giving billions of dollars to foreign countries for their gender programs while op opioids have killed more young people <laughs> in America than COVID will ever kill. Um, so why, why aren't we, you know, shit, if we're going to assign stuff to the COVID relief bill, why don't we put some money in there for resources for, for our, our returning heroes and for the young people of America that, that are facing it, you know, facing down the barrel of this gun. Cause that's what it is. It's, it's a gun pointed at your head that you never know was it's, it's, it's roulette, right? It's the opioid roulette. So anyway, yeah, I'll get off I my mean, soapbox. No, I, no, just... no. I hear you big bro. Cause there's, it is, it's interesting because even, even for 2020 and, and since COVID hit, like overdoses and suicides have gone up by 30%. Um, since the start of this whole pandemic, which, yeah, and, and I do feel like resources aren't as available as they should be, um, which is unfortunate. But, you know, uh, I know that there's certain things that I'm trying to do now to just be able to do my part on it. I mean, I'd like to, to help. Uh, and I mean, you're doing a great job. I'd like to talk about the resources, though. And we've kind of touched on this before, and I've, I've talked about this with other guests in different degrees, but I think in your mind, what, what do you think are, what are the resources that, that are lacking? And let me kind of preface that by saying, like, I don't necessarily think it's only money, right? I, mm. I believe, and I, please correct me if I'm wrong. This is why I'm asking, but it, it seems to me that it's more than just government money, right? I, so am I, am I wrong? I mean, in your mind or in your opinion, what resources do we need? What should we be focusing on? Because uh, I do think, and let me say this too, and then I'll, I'll let you answer because I'm, I'm rambling, but I, I tend to think that people use different substances in varying degrees to fill a void and that mm -hmm. void can be a myriad of things. Right. So, I mean, is it, is it money? Is it education? Is it, um, you know, what do you think it is? <laughs> let me, I'll let you answer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it's a mix of both money and education. Um, there is, 
the, so for to get into treatment, uh, typically, well, you need insurance, right? You need insurance, or you need to be able to afford to to be able to go to one of these uh, facilities. So what I've seen is. For instance, Jana and I, we didn't have insurance whenever we got sober. We were about 24 at the time and uh, grateful because dad set back dad's retirement like an extra five years because he ended up cash paying for both Jana and I to go to treatment. And he paid for eight months of treatment for both of us, uh, which isn't cheap. Uh, treatment on average can be around 15 grand per month. Um, there are, and then if you're, you're going through insurance, it depends on what kind of insurance you have, because more often than not, if you're doing with military, there's TRICARE, which there are, uh, programs out there that, uh, that do accept TRICARE now more and more that are in that work. I actually, uh, Ben and I had a, uh, a mutual friend that his son actually needed treatment and I was able to help him get into a pretty good spot out here in Southern California, um, with TRICARE. So there are resources, uh, become more and more resources becoming available for that. There's also Randy Moretis, um, God bless him, bless him. He has a nonprofit called, uh, what is it? Care Possible. And care possible, what they do is, I mean, they basically raise funds to scholarship a certain amount of, whether it's active or veterans, uh, per year. And they're based out of here in Southern California. So, so Sam, tell us, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, that transition? So, so you and Jana go to North Carolina, uh, to the wilderness program, you come to, um, Orange County. She goes into the she goes into the the program with um, with Celia, your daughter, and then you're in sober living. And then um, there is a point where you guys obviously um, come back together and are able to live together again. You know, outside of of, of uh, let's let's say a facility, right? Um, and first off, let me say I wanted to get this out that. You know, the odds, the odds, and, and Sam knows the, these numbers better than, than I do and probably most of our listeners, but the, the odds of somebody relapsing um, are very high when it comes to this I'll, kind of stuff. I'll, I'll fill in on this piece for you, bro, and then I'll kick it back to you. So oh, yeah. 85% of married couples that get sober together, uh, one of them ends up uh, relapsing within the first year. And then another 13% end up divorced within the first year of sobriety. Right. And so when did you, nine years, right? You just had your ninth birthday. Jana picks up nine next Tuesday. And then I pick up nine, two weeks after her. Yeah. We went to treatment at the same time, but I snorted a sleeping pill while I was in treatment, like two weeks in. So she has Good two for you. weeks in me. Good yeah. for you. Everybody's like, well, what did it do? And I was like, I slept a couple of like extra hours. Like that's about yeah. it. <laughs> I snorted a smarty once. I don't think it did the same thing. Uh, trying to lighten it up a little bit, but the, no, I just wanted to say out loud that, um, you know, I, I'm, 
you're, you're my hero to both of you. Um, not only, you know, they've, they've grown their family, um, since, since they got sober together, have stayed together and, uh, are very strong functioning, beautiful family. Um, but take us, take us from, take us, how how did you get into what you're doing in the sober living community? I I mean, I know you've had different roles. You've done admissions, you've done counseling. You're obviously a, a, a sponsor. You, you get sponsored, um, you know, and, and I, you know, honestly, I mean, you and I talk about this all the time personally. Um, but you know, I don't know the ins and outs totally of, of exactly what, what got you to that, to that point to decide to work there. Yeah. Um, so I was, I never really knew what I wanted to do long-term. I knew I needed to get my life together whenever I was what 19 years old. So I joined the Marine Corps. Um, and then once I was in the Marine Corps, I didn't, I never saw myself doing like a full 20 or a full 30. Um, I just figured I was going to do a four and out type of deal. And it wasn't until I got sober and I went through treatment and I saw the way that that the the guides were helping me and, and helped all the other patients that were going through that wilderness program that it really it inspired me to want to do something. And and I knew that I wanted to help people, but I couldn't do that right away at 30, 60 days sober. So when I got out here, um, I was pretty fortunate because we we were 24 at the time. I figured to get sober, you had to be like over 50. And I just pictured a bunch of like old people sitting in a circle. Like, and I don't know why, but everybody was wearing trench coats for some reason. Um, and they're like talking about their problems. Like that's what I thought getting sober meant. Um, and so when I got out here, it kind of blew me away because the first meeting I walked into, there were 200 people in that room and 75% of the room was in their twenties. So it kind of just, I didn't know that there was that large of a young community, young recovery community. So it was overwhelming, but it was also, again, inspiring to, okay, this can work. I can do this. And I, I kind of, I was fortunate enough to where I latched onto a, a group of people that there were like 14 of them and they were uh, 14 guys all between the ages of the youngest was 19. The oldest was like 30 and they all had between a year in like seven years of sobriety. And they kind of just took me under their wing. Uh, it is a, it's a little bit more of a, uh, a Caucasian community where I got sober and, you know, everybody needs a token black guy. So they, they kind of just pulled me in with the group and said, Hey, let's roll. And said, you got it. And I, why I say I was fortunate is because they, they were all already, had a decent amount of time. They were all sponsoring guys, and that was something that I w- I wanted to get to. So I kind of just got in, tried to do the next right thing, and, and things started falling into place for me. And I started going to meetings, got a sponsor, uh, which how I even got my sponsor was, uh, I believe, uh, through the grace of God. Like I was, we were headed to this meeting. I think I had like four months at the time. And my buddy, little Will, he was 19 year old trust fund kid 
from Springfield, Mass. And he's like, you know, you need to get a sponsor, right? And I'm thinking like this kid, trying to, he's trying to tell me what to do. I already have a problem with authority. Like, don't you know who I think I am? <laughs> but all, all that came out of my mouth was, yeah, I should get a sponsor. Because clearly he had done something right to already have a year sober. I can tell that in his eyes that he was content with who he was as a human being. And that was something that I wanted to get to. Um, just peace of mind, peace of heart. So I said, yeah, I like that Freeman guy. And he was like, why? Because he's the only other black guy in the room over here. And I was like, well, no, kind of. And I was like, well, I just want, I want Freeman as a sponsor. I like, what I liked about Freeman was that you could tell he was just content. And he had nine years at the time. And he was like, well, he's got a lot of guys, but you can ask him. But I don't know. I know they're sponsoring quite a few people. I'm not sure if he's going to have time. So anyways, we get to this meeting. There's 200 people at this meeting. Uh, the empty seat right next to me two minutes before the meeting starts, who comes and sits in that seat? Freeman. And uh, I kind of like look up at the ceiling and I just think, okay, God. And so during the meeting, Ike and I are kind of having some sidebars here and there. And so halfway through the meeting, I just asked him, I said, hey, would you be willing to sponsor me? And he said, well, I got a lot of guys, but I could be your temporary sponsor. And I was thinking, in my head, I was like, I don't need a temp, like I need a sponsor. What's this temporary stuff? But I said, okay. And towards the end of the meeting, he said, I'll tell you what, if I want you to go home tonight and I want you to pray about it. And if you still want me to be your sponsor, then give me a shout tomorrow and we'll get going. And I already knew that I wanted him, but, uh, I went home that night, I said a prayer, and that was like the first time in a long time that I felt like this warmth come over me. So I called him the next morning, and uh, we kind of got after it stepwise from there. And uh, as I continued like, doing what was asked of me by him and in terms of the steps and just being a service to my fellow man and woman uh, in, the, in the rooms, I started connecting with people and there was another individual where his brother like ran one of the more prominent treatment centers in the nation at the time. And usually they didn't hire anybody until they had at least uh, a year sober. And I think by that point I had like seven to eight months sober and he put in a good word to his brother. He said, Hey, I really think you should hire this kid. Like he's really dialed, dialed in and he's fired up about recovery. And so they hired me on as a house tech. And I was, I was like, right. And I don't even think I had a bicycle at the time. I was walking to and from everywhere I needed to be. And, Cause Jana and I didn't even get our first vehicle out here in Southern California until we were a year and a half sober. So by that time we were, Married with two kids, but how we got around to everybody was, I mean, it's such a, such a strong recovery community out here. Like people would pick us up and take us to the grocery store or take us to and from work or would, like just being a maximum service. Um, so I still, I try to give that back today because of that, because I know people took time out of their busy schedules to help us. So the least I can do is, is pay it forward. And so I, I started doing the house tech and 
moved from house tech to a driver and I was driving patients to and from uh, whether it was uh, groups or individual sessions or dentist appointments, what have you. The next thing you know, I'm doing more client interventions, uh, like dealing with more crisis and people that were trying to leave against clinical advice. I would go sit down with them, talk with them. Um, more often than not, they'd end up staying and completing treatment. And then I went from that to taking care of alumni and then from alumni to a director of business development and then from business development to admissions. So currently I'm actually the director of uh, business development for a facility called Oceanfront Recovery that's located in Laguna Beach. Okay. I'm curious, how did you, you said you talked people into staying. What, how were you? Well, I mean, it was, what was your tactic to get people to stay? <laughs> yeah. So more often than not, I mean, I think advantages for me where I could relate to the, the older population because of the fact that I already was married. Um, I already had kids by that point and I had already been in the Marine Corps. Okay. So they respected me a little bit more at 24, 25 years old because I'd already had some life experience. Okay. And then I could also relate with the 18 to 24 year old and what they were going through because it's like, Hey, been there, done that, got the t-shirt as well. And I'm not too far off from that. So I think that really helped. And then more often than not, I would let them vent for a while. And then I would say, Hey, maybe you should just leave. And they're like, what do you mean I should just leave? And I said, well, I mean, you're, you're not being held prisoner here. Like, it's a, it's a choice to do this. And if you're not ready, you're not ready. And I think they, they were expecting the big, you need to stay, speech, and please. And so when I told them, hey, you can leave, they were like, well, I don't want to leave. Okay, well, stay. I'd love for you to stay as well. <laughs> and so that was... A lot of how those conversations would go as well would be off of that point. That's, so, that's, that's so interesting. I, this, I'm fascinated by the psychology behind all this, you know, because it's almost like they want someone to tell them it's okay to stay, you know, like they can't, yeah. almost like they can't say it themselves, but once they get permission from someone else, then it, it makes it okay, you know. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's also part of, you know, I, I feel like a lot of alcoholics, what it comes down to as well as fight or flight, you know, and, and when stuff gets uncomfortable and you really start looking at feelings and, and challenges and learning how to cope without the use of uh, drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, that's really when the rubber hits the pavement and, and what we're trying to teach is, hey, uh, there's ways to still have fun without the use of drugs and alcohol. There's ways to deal with challenging situations without the use of that because for so long, that was the go-to. It's like, okay, that that just gives me all the more excuse to use. Right. Do you think, in in your case, do you think if if you hadn't had the intervention, do you think that you would have gone to rehab? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I can tell you what happened leading up to it and why I actually went is, uh, 
Christmas Eve of 2011 was actually the first meeting that I'd ever been to in my life. Okay. So my, my childhood friend, Joey, that I grew up with, he has three more months than Jana and I. He got sober October of 2011. And Joey was home on a weekend pass. And he was like, hey, man, like I got to, or I called him and I said, bro, where you been? I got to see you. Like, I haven't seen you since I got out. And he was like, dude, I'm sober now. And I was like, yeah, bro, me too. Like, for sure. And he was like, okay, well, you can go with me to this meeting if you want. And so he didn't tell me, hey, I know you're getting loaded and I know you need to go to a meeting. He, it's like you were saying with the psychology piece. He just let me know, like, hey, you have the choice to go if you'd like to. Right. And so I was like, yeah, man, I'll go to that meeting with you for sure. Like I've got like eight months sober and I was like nodding out while I'm on the phone with him. And so he comes to pick me up for that meeting and it was over step one. And step one is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And it, it I mean, it just hit me. It got punched me right there. And I knew that if they were right and I was wrong, I was screwed. Uh, and it kind of planted that seed. So he ended up going back to his recoveries in Birmingham, Alabama. So he went home after Christmas. Uh, I kept checking out those meetings and seeing what they were about. And uh, probably a week later, my mom's laptop went missing. And we said, hey, my mom was like, hey, I can't find the laptop and I might have to file a um, police report on this mm -hmm. and so I went and asked my wife I said hey did you you know did you pawn that laptop and she said no I didn't pawn it and I said are you sure because we're going to file a police report so just give me a heads up and she was like no I, I didn't pawn it so I said okay so we go we file the police report next thing I know there's a knock at the door and it's officer Cavins and I grew up with his daughter and I'm like, hey, what's going on, Officer Cavins? A long time ago, he was like, don't what's going on, me, Sam? Like, do you have a problem? Are you okay? Like, are you are you getting loaded or any? Like, what's going on? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, we just got back from the pawn shop and we have Jaina on video um, pawning your mom's laptop. Uh. I was like, Shh. so my mom comes and asks me. She says, hey, does Jaina have a problem? And I thought for a split second, I could just say, yeah, Jana has a problem. Try to get her off to treatment. I could continue to attempt to be a dad, which I wasn't much of um, at that point in time. Or I could just tell her the truth. And those meetings, uh, planting the seed, uh, came back to me. And I was like, you know what? Yes, yeah, she does have a problem, but so do I. And I told her everything. I said, look, I've been addicted to opiates and I just showed her like all the marks on my arms. And I said, uh, I need help. And so does Jaina. And then a week after that, we were on our way to treatment. Wow. That's, that's all incredible. I mean, it's, Thank you for sharing all that. That's. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, what you see is what you get yeah. with me. 
And uh, again, I appreciate you having me on for this because I, I really enjoyed the piece that you and Ben did together. And I, I thought it was a cool deal, um, what you're doing with this podcast. And one of the reasons I thought Sam would be a good guest is <clears throat> from an entrepreneurial standpoint, from a veteran standpoint, and just from an overall perspective on on the theme of of that Brian's trying to help people with is that um, making the decision to change, whether that's um, you know whether that's losing weight, working out, reading a book a, a month, whatever that is, yeah. get a new job, whatever it mm-hmm. is. Um, I think Sam is a great example of a stubborn ass that <laughs> that got to a conclusion. I mean, he, he, you know, he had to be kicked off the cliff a little bit at the end, but, yeah. um, but Sam has made an, an absolute decision to change his life and yeah. to, and he, and, and, and he'll be the first to tell you that there's, there's probably days that um, he struggles and, you know, he doesn't tell me and probably doesn't tell his wife. And I think it's more with, um, I, you know, as, as I've gotten to know Sam sober wise over the last decade, uh, you know, I think, you know, Sam gets angry with people just like I do. And just like Brian does, we all, yeah, I think every vet just hates people once you're in the civilian yeah. world, but, um, but I think there's, you know, Sam makes a, a decision every day. I see it in him every day and he makes a decision every day. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be a better dad. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and, um, I really wanted to get across a couple things by suggesting he come on as one that period, you can make a decision and, yeah. and act on it. And it, and it, it's up to you. Nobody owes you anything. Nobody owed Sam anything. Right. And he, he's done it all himself. I mean, he's had help. He'll, he'll tell you he had help and he has, he's had resources. He's had great people influence him, but Sam did it. The Sam did the work. Um, and then secondly, I think there, in my opinion, there's, there's a, you know, there's, there's a, a picture of people out in the um, addiction community, right. That the average, uh, you know, average suburbia goes, Oh wait, you were addicted to whatever, whatever the case may be. You're addicted to heroin, Sam. Oh gosh, man, you got tattoos everywhere and you're, you know, and, and it's, you kind of get looked at a little differently. And I wanted to get across that um, Sam has introduced me to many of his friends that are all from this community of people that have struggled and have overcome it. And they wake up every day and they kick the door in. And a few of those guys that I've met are some of the most successful business people I know. Mm-hmm. And they, and uh, I mean, there's one in particular, a real good friend of Sam's, his name's Max. Um, and, and Max and I go back and forth and joke and, um, we can't say those jokes on this podcast, but, but I can tell you that, that Max is one of the success, most successful people I know. And he cares about family. He cares, you know, I think he's either engaged or just got married or uh, engaged. engaged and, you know, and he, he's living a life, um, you know, he's living a life and he's, there shouldn't be a, a stigma of, you know, about this community. Um, as well, I guess what I'm trying to say, these 
people wake up, they make a decision to do better and they kick in the door every day and they're fighting every day to, to set an example and do good. And, you know, I haven't met one person from this community that Sam lives in that, that isn't a good example. Um, and so I just wanted that maybe to get across too, but no, I appreciate that, Ben, because it brings up three points for me. Just you saying that is, I mean, one is, I view this very similar to the way I did the, the military. Like you have uh, brothers and sisters that will go go to war or that will relapse and not all of them make it back, unfortunately. And it's kind of the, that same type of idea and mentality um, in recovery. And, and there's, I've, I've lost a lot of people over the past nine, nine years. Uh, because of this and, and even before uh, to this disease and uh, two, yeah, I, I definitely myself, just like um, whether you're in recovery, you're not in recovery. Uh, it, it doesn't say anything. Uh, it does say something in the book about in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous that says you will, we will trudge this road to happy destiny together. Um, I, I can't do this deal alone, but the, it doesn't say skip through the fields to happy destiny. The the definition of trudge means to walk slowly and with heavy steps, typically because of exhaustion or harsh conditions. And that is, it, it has been a trudge. It hasn't always been easy. Um, there's days where I wake up and, and I have challenges that seem monumental, but um, at the end of the day, like I, I've been able to, to push through those and, and it's been, uh, with the support of a community and, and with my older brother, Ben, and, and with my family. And you, it also says in the book that you will, the third point is that you will live a life beyond our wildest dreams. And that's definitely what's transpired since this whole thing has happened. Like, and, and Ben called it, like I have buddies that, my buddy Max is, um, Jewish from the suburbs of Connecticut. And then our buddy Taylor is, uh, he's grew up with Italians in Long Island. And then me from St. Louis. And it's a group that generally would not mix, but we do because of this. Um, Cause we all have a common purpose today. So w- whatever that purpose is for the listener, I mean, uh, I've been to hell and back and I know that there's still a lot to live for. And I found something for me that, that that's worth living for. So I definitely hope the same can be done for you, those who are glad, listening. Sam, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you used that word purpose. Um, Brian and I um, talk a lot about, obviously, we, you know, we, addiction isn't specific to veterans, but for the, you know, we talk a lot about the veterans and the community after your separation and that word purpose um, is what I think a lot of veterans lose track of when they're separating um, and don't have one, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and is the cause or cause is not the word, but the root maybe of a lot of the um, suicide problems we see with veterans and um, addiction issues. I mean, that all it's all mental health, right? It all ties in together, whether it's yeah. addiction, suicide, homelessness. Um, mm-hmm. and it's all tied in together. And, and that word you just used, I'm glad you used it um, because 
the, you're giving an, an example um, for everybody out there that, you know, that, you know, whatever you're running from, whatever you're hiding from, whatever that, uh, that button is that makes you do what you do um, to go down that addiction road, there's resources out there and there, and there's, there's people out there that find a purpose and you can find a purpose. It's not, it's not, you know, unachievable. It's not mm-hmm. so, such a big mountain. You can't get to the top of it. And um, so I appreciate you using that word. Yeah. No, no, no problem. Uh, man, it's, you have such an incredible story. And I think been really um, summarized it really well. Like I, I, I don't think you can say it anymore perfectly. You know, it's, it's, it's finding that purpose, you know, it's finding something to replace that uh, military service or whatever it is. I, I, I don't think we can stress that enough, you know, when, whether it's doing something simple like gardening, you know, I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. that's oversimplifying it, but everybody has something that they can use that's much more healthy than some type of substance. The substance is probably the, the easiest to get a hold of, but uh, you know, anyone out there find something more constructive because as you heard from, from Sam, disaster is only, a, you know, a day away, you know, throughout your story, I, I was struck by how many times you came close to things going south real fast, you know, mm-hmm. and had things gone even a little bit differently, you may not be talking to us today, right. you know, so that's, I mean, really powerful. Everything you said, I, I, I'm, I, I don't want to say I enjoyed hearing it because that's not the right word, but I was just enthralled as I, is what I should say. <laughs> I don't, you know, definitely don't enjoy hearing someone go through hard times, but I mean, I think that the lessons that you, you gave were just incredible. Um, and I mean, it's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and I, we could, we could talk for hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I appreciate you, you know, having me. I really do. But um, I think before we close out, what I, if you don't mind, if you could just kind of talk about where people can find you. Um, I know you're, if you can mention your, your um, employer once more, just anything that you think would be helpful one last time. And then we'll, um, we'll post everything in the show notes. So anyone that, that's driving or doesn't have a pen handy, uh, you can check this out at the website and uh, we'll have it linked there, but just anything you'd like to, to put out there one last time before we, uh, before we sign off. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I can, I can be reached at oceanfront recovery, which is located in Laguna beach. And it is a, a treatment facility that specializes in primary substance abuse uh, with the secondary mental health. We are a dual diagnosis facility uh, there. And then I actually also uh, co-own a, CBD company and sells tinctures as well as uh, salves and my wife and then my buddy Brad Bailey who's uh, I definitely hold him dear I was the best man at his wedding uh, his wife and my wife are kind of the the spokespeople for that if you will for a company called the Rooted Company okay and then I also own a third party. Great. billing. It's a gr- let me interrupt. It's a great pro. It's a great product. I take, um, 
Shana has gotten me um, some oils. Uh, I have some chronic um, headache stuff that, that uh, you know, I was taking a lot of Tylenol and Excedrin and stuff. And um, I, I use their CBD and hair oil. oil. No, I'm just no I, I never did the heroin. <laughs> I snorted a, a Smarty, man. Um, but the uh, no, the, the the CBD oil, I take it every morning, uh, a little shot of it, sometimes in my coffee, sometimes just, you know, under the tongue. And their product has uh, my, my migraines have um, nearly disappeared. So, I, I mean, I would like that is a product, you know, I want to. I'd like to give it a, an endorsement. It's a product that I actually use. So it's uh, the rooted group is great. The rooted yeah. company. That's right. Rooted company. Yeah. That's yeah. We'll, def- we'll definitely post some, some links to that, you know, since we're talking about it real quick, um, the, the CBD stuff is kind of interesting. Um, I know we're kind of wrapping up, but <laughs> I want to talk about that. <laughs> All good. Too. Can you, for someone that's not familiar with CBD, um, uh, can you give someone a brief summary of what it is and kind of explain the difference between, I think most people associate CBD with marijuana or, you know, THC, right. but can you kind of break that difference down and kind of explain this one, why a, a CBD product isn't, um, you know, marijuana? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so CBD, there's different types of CBD. You can go, um, full spectrum, which does have a percentage of THC in it, but it's, okay like 0.003% THC in it. So meaning like I give Ben 30 milliliter tinctures uh, and what he's talking about, those oils. And you can, there's different ways to use it. People put it in their coffee or they put it under their tongue and, and hold it there for a minute. And it's more what a lot of individuals have found is that it calms them down in a manner that doesn't require them to take psych medications that they were really dependent on. Um, I personally use it for times whenever I have spikes in anxiety, but it would take probably me chugging uh, 10 of those bottles before any THC, like before I got a high. I'm like, I'm not going to pop for THC for it, even though there's 0.003% unless I'm chugging like 10 bottles. Mm -hmm. So I'd probably throw up before I got the high that I was looking for, uh, truth be told. And so the, the full spectrum that, that is what we have for the oils as well as for the salves. Um, my dad has used it for, uh, joint pains. He said that's helped more than some of the pain medications that he was taking. And I, I know there's still a lot of studies behind it but i know for me and for a lot of the experiences that i've seen with the individuals it's a safer alternative for them than uh, other medications would be so there's also a, a gal that i grew up with from back home and her son was having a terrible time uh, falling asleep at night um and she started uh, giving him CBD and he, he sleeps through it. She said it's the best that he slept and she doesn't remember how long. Um, so it's without any of the crazy uh, side effects that you can get from other medications. So I've, I've heard it used for joints. I've heard it used for anxiety. Uh, the other day, my nanny uh, told me that she was like 
she had really bad uh, stomach issues. And I said, uh, well, have you tried the RCBD? And she was like, no. And I said, here. And I, I gave her um, a drop from the tincture. Um, and probably 10, 15 minutes later, she said she felt fine. And even when she was waking up at like 2 o'clock in the morning uh, because of that. So what I can testify to on the CBD is just the, the stories that I've heard in regards to it. I'm not a doctor at the end of the day claim to be i just know the experiences that people have had and, and how they've been able to get through it with the assistance of cbd do you have any do you have any people that have used cbd for any type of like arthritis or anything like that has that come up ben do you know if dad's used it for arthritis as well yeah the salve uh the the salve portion is great for arthritis yeah he used it on his um our, our dad had a full knee replacement and a full okay. hip replacement and doesn't, our dad doesn't do well with um, the, the Vicodins and the painkillers. He just, he hates to take them to make him nauseous. Um, so having to take that after the deal was, he was struggling with that. And then Sam gave him some of the, the salve and, and, um, and uh, it, it did wonders for both the knee and the hip, which were, replacements um i mean i guess it's not really arthritis but the same same usage aches, right aches and pains and joints nonetheless. yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, and i could tell you brian kind of hitting on your point our parents are um extremely religious mm -hmm. um and and very obviously anti-drug um mm -hmm. not big supporters of uh legalized marijuana and other things mm -hmm. and um and uh he's he's been very comfortable using the, the salve. It's, you know, it's, while it is made from, I guess, marijuana plants or, or cannabis plants, it's not, uh, it is, it needs to be separated. Um, both of both Sam and I, um, uh, have had friends, very close friends, um, d develop and die of cancer in the last few years. And, um, both of them, uh, would not have survived as long as they did and would not have functioned during their sickness, um, without the help of CBD. Um, hmm. and it, it, it's just, uh, that, that kind of flipped my mind. Um, you know, after our family, um, kind of went through this thing with Sam and Jaina, um, I became very, uh, you know, I'm not a big, um, I wasn't a big legalized the marijuana guy, right? And mm -hmm. um, and and would have told you the same thing, Brian. To your point, that there's going to be a listener out there that goes, "Wait, CBD isn't that weed?" Um, mm -hmm. I was on that. I was in that bus. I was on that team um, until I, um, you know, Sam's educated me a lot more on the differences and what to look for in your CBD oil. But um, you know, seeing some people out there being able to take a non-narcotic to, to help them function as they go through um, chemo treatment uh, and it's night and day right. really flipped my mind on um, the acceptance of CBD and, and um, I, I think you can be an anti-drug person or, or anti-drugs not the word but you know what I mean yeah. and still um, 
take or support the use of some CBD products. Because, so. And there, there is also uh, isolate CBD that's out there as well, which means it doesn't have any percentage whatsoever of THC. Uh, for the listener, if that makes you more comfortable as well, there are options for isolate CBD, which doesn't have any traces of THC. That's if you're still weary. After. Yeah, the reason I wanted to talk about that just before we go, you know, I, me personally, like I don't like taking medication. I mean, I'm not like an anti-medicine kind of guy. Like I try to avoid it if I can. And I, I really that's how our like, dad is. That's how our dad is. He, he, yeah. he doesn't like it at all. Uh, I, I kind of, me personally, I feel like a lot of things can be controlled with diet and exercise and sleep and water intake and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm more the person like, let's try to address the, the underlying issue first and then let's step it up as, as we need to, you know, but obviously there are drugs that do wonders like polio vaccines and stuff like that. So, I mean, I'm not <laughs> one of those guys, but yeah. I think it's a vaccine. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, that's all another thing. <laughs> that's for our side. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. But uh, I mean, kind of keeping it in, in line with what we're talking about, you know, one of the, this is, you'll see where I'm going with this in a second, but one of the things that struck me about what you said was with the opiates, it almost seems as though the, the system was designed to make it acceptable because I think taking a prescription drug psychologically is a lot different than shooting heroin. Right. Yeah. But from what you describe, the feeling isn't that much different, you know, right. and the addiction isn't that much different. So, you know, for anyone out there, there are alternatives to <laughs> these crazy Safe pain medications. You know? Yeah, I, no. I literally today was listening to um, the radio, uh, and I can't remember. It was a national um, broadcast guy, and and they were talking about the opioid opioid crisis. And the guy literally says, he goes, he goes, like, like, why is it so accessible and so frequently prescribed? He goes, can you name somebody that's had a good experience with op opioids? Like, hey, man, I just took them and, and it was, it turned out, everything turned out great. I never, yeah. never got addicted, never got high. I mean, can you name somebody? I mean, I, and I, I just thought it was a, such an interesting point that, um, I mean, I think the point of the cold conversation was what I was kind of getting at earlier is that we have hundreds of thousands I mean, that may even be a low number. Sam probably knows better, but just of young people and the spectrum of people here in our country that are struggling with this thing. And, you know, big pharma is shoving that down our throats, um, you know, and, and it, it just doesn't seem to be not that nobody's paying attention to it, but it just doesn't seem to be getting the attention that it should. Yeah. And that, that brings up two points. Like, First one, I've never, it's crazy how more socially acceptable uh, opiates are in high school even at this point. Like when I was in high school, that was more of a closet deal, getting loaded on opiates. But it's become so much more uh, socially acceptable. And uh, another point is, based off of what Brian was saying, is Jaina, so my wife, she wasn't, like I was already full blown alcoholic and I think she came out with a, a bit different mind frame than me until she had her C-section. 
Ursalia. And she got prescribed pain medication. And next thing you know, like she was, that's when she started getting put on that pain, pain management contract. She kind of finessed the system and started getting prescribed like 120 pills a, a month. Wow. Yeah. That's a common practice too on a pain management regimen. It's getting less and less. I think there's some, I know a couple pain management doctors here in Las Vegas and they are great people and they're very conscious of this crisis and they're doing a great job to um, treat the the root cause. Like you were talking about, Brian, they're, they're more now, I think um, there's some doctors out there now that are, are, uh, are more, Hey, let's, let's get you a purpose and get you Mm -hmm. exercising and taking some vitamins and, you Mm -hmm. know, some other things before, you know, and then really monitor, um, you know, the, the pain pills and injections and other things. But, um, yeah, it's, I've looked into it too. This is the last thing and then we'll sign off, you know, just for anyone out there, like there's a trend now called like functional medicine, you know, where doctors, they start off taking your blood and they basically get a, picture of your health and then prescribe not medication, but they prescribe lifestyle changes in order to get yourself kind of back in balance. I, I go to a doctor like that. Well, then you know better than I do for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But the crazy thing is if I were to do that, I would have to pay for it out of pocket. Right. But if I get sick, then my insurance pays, you know, for some of my, oh. my healthcare. And I hope that don't we get, get to- okay. So don't even get me started, man. <laughs> <laughs> I will. We don't have healthcare but, in America. We have reaction yeah. care. And yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I, that's definitely a show I want to do. And I want to do that here sometime soon where we can actually kind of break that down because I don't think a lot of people realize the difference. And I think so much can be said for taking care of yourself up front. You know, and doctors that, aren't, doctors aren't paid yeah. to keep you healthy, Brian. They get paid when you get sick. Yeah. I, yeah. exactly. And so that's a whole nother topic, but yeah, whole nother um, topic. <laughs> we, uh, I think that's, we've talked a lot today. We've covered a lot of things and I think that's, this is probably a good place to end cause we can, we can go all night, but, um, Sam, Sam, Sam did Sam get to say his company's website? Yes. Okay. Can, all right. Yeah. Okay, for the Sam, Rudy company. And then there's also noble billing, which is a third party. Uh, billing company we do yeah. medical billing as well and that's we, noblebill.com yeah we didn't even talk about that either yeah sam that just means you have to come back again <laughs> i'd love to well because we uh i definitely want to talk about i know we talked about cbd a little bit but i would like to get into the uh the business side of that uh, and then we can talk about your medical billing too because we like to talk about small business and kind of getting started but your um addiction and recovery story was so incredible that I, I just wanted to, to really focus on that. Cause that, that was, it was really incredible to hear. And I'm really proud of all the progress you've made. And I really, it's, that's an incredible story. And I really thank you for, for telling everyone that and sharing your experiences. And, and I know, I know there are people out there that will just get an enormous amount of help just from, from hearing your story. But, um, if they need more help, they can always reach out to you and your, your company. Um, and I know it, it sounds like you're doing great work. So. I appreciate it. Semper Fi, yeah. Warrior. Yeah. Semper Fi. Oh, good. Night. I thought we were going to end this nicely. 
<laughs> you know, uh, on since since we're wrapping up the show, and with that comment that that Ben made, I want to say that the Madu shirts are probably some of the most poorly made. No. <laughs> <laughs> some army guys are just sitting around in a motor pool. I think what happens smoking is cigarettes yeah. and making our t-shirts they're terrible i really think ben goes around and finds homeless people and then just takes the shirts off their backs no. <laughs> i love it i would honestly i mean the one last one that he gave me smelled funny so i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> oh my oh, god no. there we go i had to get one last dig in ben's shirts are awesome yeah i have a couple that's right uh so please please support ben and his company he's he's doing good work with his stuff <laughs> I shouldn't insult his his shirts and his his clothing because no, you're fine. I can take it. I'm a big well, boy. I just don't want the listeners to get the wrong idea. No, <laughs> I I appreciate you letting Sam come on. I I love it. You know, obviously, I love him. I love his family and his story. But uh, I think it was something that was worthwhile getting out there for Absolutely. the listeners. And you know, he's my hero. So well, appreciate it, big bro. And I love you too. You know that. Thanks for having me on, gentlemen. Yeah, thank you, Sam. It was good talking to you. Uh, and with that, for this extraordinary episode, I'm signing off. This is Brian for the Nothing Go podcast. Until next time, everybody. Goodbye.